In last week's episode of Radium and Roses, you heard more about the history of the doctors who are responsible for the proliferation of the nasal radium treatment, namely Samuel Crow. This episode also included our discovery that, in the early 20th century, Baltimore was home to one of the world's largest stores of radium, and that Hopkins was using this radium to experiment on the public for a number of reasons in the public wards of the hospital though it was also being used in the private practices of Dr. Kelly and his associates. Today's episode will explore just one of the many far-reaching tendrils of Samuel Crow's legacy. The story of one woman who, because of the nasal radium treatments she received as a child, has had repeated severe health problems. Now, before we get into the content of this week's episode, I just want to say that we actually made a mistake in last week's episode, episode 5, where we misread the half-life of radium as 16,000 years, and it's actually 1,600 years. Still a very long time, of course, long enough to have unforeseen consequences for those who had been exposed to radium, particularly as young children. One such individual is the woman that we'll hear from today. Her story begins long before she received the treatment. Let's start in 1939, when Dr. Henry L. Haynes receives his medical degree from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, studying otolaryngology under Samuel J. Crow. As Haynes finishes his medical degree, the United States is reaching the peak of the Second World War. And the United States military was seeking a solution to the problems that submariners and pilots were having adjusting to pressure changes. And, as discussed in the last episode, Samuel J. Crow recommended to a Navy lieutenant that they begin using this NRI. So the U.S. Navy sends the recent graduate of Hopkins, Henry L. Haynes, to New London, Connecticut, to the submarine school, where he treated trainees who developed ear problems from presser chamber exercises and submarine escape drills using the nasal radium treatment that he was trained to use by Samuel J. Crow. By 1946, Haynes and his colleague Harris published an article in the medical literature testifying to the benefits of using nasopharyngeal radium irradiation on submariners and pilots in New London, Connecticut. And at that same time, Haynes had set up a private practice and was also using the treatment on civilians. My name is Fran Keneally. I'm 73. My experience, the first thing, I was young. I'd say maybe about seven years old, and uh, I had a uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor because I used to have a lot of problems, and uh, he said that it was from, um, he thought my ad noise, but uh, what he wanted to do was try this experiment. My parent, this is what he told my parents, it was an experiment, and uh, they were doing it to civilians, and uh the service personnel, like the, well, here it was the Navy. And uh, so I went every week 
once a week to have these uh, rods put up my nose. And uh, this went on, oh God, I can't remember for how long. It wasn't a horrible procedure, you know what I mean? It wasn't something you couldn't stand. What what I remember about it is the comic books. <laughs> I was so excited because he had a gigantic stack of comic books because you had to sit there. It, to me, it felt like it was hours, but I'm sure it wasn't. I don't know the exact time frame. But all I can remember is, oh, good, I get to go get the comics, you know? And uh, that's how I remembered it, so... At this point in the interview, I ask Fran if she remembers the doctor staying in the room or leaving the room during the procedure. Oh, no, he left the room. Okay. Yeah, his name was Dr. Ames. Yeah. So far, every person I've talked to who remembers receiving the treatment says that the doctor left the room, which to me suggests that they were aware of the risks of being around that much radium. By the time Fran was receiving this treatment, it was the mid-1950s, and we were well aware of the effects of radium. Yet, Dr. Haynes still described this treatment as experimental to Fran's parents. But it wasn't until years later that Fran herself became aware of the potential risks she faced as a result of receiving this treatment. And then years later, I was trying to get pregnant, and I couldn't. I kept losing the babies. So uh, the doctor, I had gone to an endocrinologist, and he was also an OBGYN. And they had uh, other doctors. I was having severe headaches. And other doctors were trying to figure out what it was, and they pulled my teeth. You can't believe the things they did to me. Uh, and ended up that this gynecologist found the brain tumor. The tumor that the doctors found on Fran's pituitary gland was the reason that she was unable to carry a child to term. The radiation of her pituitary gland as a child resulted in the growth of this pituitary tumor, which resulted in hormone imbalances that prevented her from being able to carry a child. Here is Stuart Farber in April of 2020, explaining a little bit more in detail exactly how the irradiation of the pituitary gland can lead to hormonal issues that can affect a woman's ability to carry a child. And that, that goes to the whole hormonal issue with pituitary damage from nasal radiation. It's the pituitary controls, you know, a dozen different bodily functions or, you know, it's just a huge thing if you start looking at pituitary function and control the pituitary is the center of this feed, series of feedback loops where it secretes hormones for calcium metabolism and cortisol production and you know thyroid hormones and this and that and you know, it goes on and on. If you damage the pituitary, you don't know what's going to show up. You know, female sex hormones, male sex hormones, uh, the ability of a woman to carry a, an embryo. Uh, have it implant and start a successful pregnancy. It affects that. Um, it's it's so insidious that if the pituitary is damaged, uh, you can run into uh, a, a huge, complex, confusing mix of health effects. Stuart is actually the one who connected me with Fran. They worked together in the 1990s 
to bring awareness to this issue. Fran actually testified at the same 1994 Senate subcommittee hearing focused on the radiation treatments of both civilians and military personnel. In 2020, Stewart shared with me a recording of this hearing in which Stewart and Fran both testify. In her testimony, Fran describes how at age 14, she began having headaches and issues menstruating. The time she was 19, she was in her first marriage. And by 1966, she had her first pregnancy and her first miscarriage. In the testimony, she describes how between the time that she was 23 and 35, she had five more miscarriages. She goes on to describe the back and forth she had with doctors in trying to determine the best treatment for this pituitary gland tumor. Ultimately, she says she opted for the 25 radiation treatments to destroy the pituitary tumor. Well, along with the tumor, these 25 cobalt treatments also destroyed her pituitary gland. Here's a recording from the 1994 testimony in which she describes the after effects of the 25 radiation treatments that she received to treat the brain tumor that she developed as a result of having radium inserted up her nose. And I do apologize for the quality of this audio recording because it comes from this old footage from C-SPAN. <clears throat> after the radiation treatments, it was found uh, out through the MRI results that the pituitary gland and the thyroid was burnt out. So now I have to have um, synthetic hormones for the rest of my life. I produce no estrogen, so I have osteoporosis. This is because the pituitary gland and the thyroid were burned out by the treatment you received? By the treatments. By the later treatments. By the later yeah. treatments. Um, I have to have uh, bone scans every six to eight months, and my bones begin um, to weaken steadily. In fact, last year I had pneumonia, and I broke a back rib just coughing. In 2020, when I spoke with Fran, these issues haven't gotten any better. I, I've never been one. I always pushed myself. Like I said, I, they gave me prednisone, a huge, huge amount of prednisone. It broke three bones in my back, and they can't do anything for me, and I'm in constant pain. It's ridiculous. In fact, we had to delay our interview a few times because she was in such severe pain she couldn't move from bed. But when we did finally speak, she told me about the hotline that she set up in the 1990s to get in touch with other people who received the nasopharyngeal radium irradiation treatment. I never realized it was so strong and so many people wanted to tell their stories. So I started out just having them call my phone, but it was just crazy. So I put in an 800 number and they would call me. I'd write down, document their stories. <clears throat> and uh, worked with Stu Faber and another gentleman, I can't remember his name, but it ended up that he was fraudulent, so they couldn't use any of his information. Here she's referring to one James or Jim Garrity, uh, another person who in the 1990s came out to say that they had received the treatment while serving as a U.S. military member. He was the founder of the submarine survivors group that Stuart Farber was involved with. But, as Stuart told me, 
He later came to find out that Garrity had fabricated the story and had not actually received nasopharyngeal radium irradiation. So while Garrity's story turned out to be false, Fran Keneally's story is very much real. By 1993, when Fran was researching this, Henry Haynes had died, and along with him, any record of her treatment at his hands. But according to Fran, the records were long gone before he died. And when I went to get his, my records, I, I think he got really super uh, afraid because he quit, when this all started, he quit, resigned, you know, and destroyed all the paperwork. Didn't even give people a chance to get their records. So Fran, along with Stuart Farber in the 1990s, had invested a lot of energy and time into bringing awareness to this issue and to telling the stories of those who received the treatment and were not being heard. She was treated with nasopharyngeal radium irradiation as a child by Dr. Henry Haynes, who was trained by Samuel Crow at Johns Hopkins University. And as a result of this treatment, she's had repeated health issues and to this day suffers from chronic pain that prevents her from living the life she wants to live. And she's not alone in this story. In 2020, Stuart Farber added me to a small Facebook group for survivors of the treatment. At the time that I joined, there's about 70 members. And to browse the posts is to browse the true legacy of Dr. Samuel Crow. There's repeated stories about thyroid tumors, head and neck cancers, hormone issues, all as a result of the radiation treatment that these people received, mostly as children. Fran expressed disgust that nothing has been done for these people who were treated as civilians. And she says that this disgust is the reason that she gave up working on this issue years ago, just like Stuart Farber did. In concluding our phone call, she echoed Stuart Farber's sentiment in wishing me good luck in pursuing this story. The two of them may be seeming somewhat relieved to have someone come along with a fresh perspective on the story. Someone who hasn't reached a breaking point of disgust and frustration with the lack of response from the U.S. government, from Johns Hopkins, and from the CDC. So while I may not have invested as much of my life into this issue as they have yet, I am committed to telling this story and sharing it with the public in hopes of potentially holding Johns Hopkins and other institutions responsible accountable. I want to conclude this episode by saying thank you to everyone who has tuned in to listen to the podcast over the past six weeks. Please keep sharing this podcast. Keep talking about it with your friends and your family and your colleagues. Because the more people that talk about it, the more people that will know the truth. And this includes people who receive the treatment and just genuinely aren't aware that they face any risk. Or who have made have had health consequences but aren't aware that it's a result of the treatment they received. Because ultimately, it's up to those who received this treatment to advocate for themselves and their own health. Because right now, the institutions in place meant to do so for them aren't living up to that expectation.
Now, things with this podcast may slow down over the next couple of weeks as I have to invest more time in researching and connecting with potential people to interview as we move forward. But I hope you'll keep an eye on our Facebook, on our forthcoming website, to stay tuned about future episodes.